Lord Jesus, what an amazing, crazy, awe-inspiring journey you went on. From throne, down to the cradle, through the cross, and now you're enthroned once again. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Lord, as we are in this Christmas season, I pray that you will fix our eyes on you. That you will inspire us with a fresh sense of awe because we confess that we can easily take for granted these truths which are so absolutely astonishing. We take them for granted, Lord, because they seem familiar to us. We've been through this Christmas season before. We may take them for granted because we just get caught up in so many other things, things that can stress us out, things that can distract us, things that can delight us. But in that process, we lose sight of you. And so, Lord, even today, I pray that you will return our hearts to a sense of awe and praise as we focus on you. We pray these things and lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we began a series that's called Prince of Peace. In this title, Prince of Peace, it refers to Jesus. And it comes from a passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. Now Isaiah was a prophet. He lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. And he did not write or speak in English. And so rather than writing this word peace that we have in English, he wrote the word shalom. It's a Hebrew word that we translate as peace. But we have to understand the idea of shalom is so much bigger than what we typically think of when we think of peace. We think maybe of inner tranquility. We maybe think of a lack of conflict when we think of peace. But shalom is so much deeper, so much broader, so much more robust, and frankly, much more exciting. Let me give us a definition. Shalom is the experience of wholeness, vitality, and flourishing when things are functioning the way they're supposed to in relation to God. And I believe that we all, every single human being, in fact, yearns for shalom. We all want to thrive. For instance, we want our team to win the championship. We want our marriage to be enjoyable. We want our kids to be a blessing to others. We want our life to have meaning. When we sleep at night, we want to be able to sleep well. We all yearn for shalom. You never see a baby who is happy if it has to go hungry through the night. No child goes to school hoping they will be bullied on the playground. No teenager enjoys working hard in practice and then losing the big game. No college student dreams of getting stuck in a series of dead-end jobs. No young adult stands at the altar and thinks, wow, I cannot wait till we get divorced. No parent gets excited when their child is making terrible decisions. And no one ever relishes major health challenges or being hurt by others or the death of a loved one or investing yourself in something that then falls apart. We all yearn for shalom. But I believe we also all recognize that shalom does not always happen. A fundamental truth in this world is that the world is broken. 
We long for shalom. We want that wholeness and vitality and flourishing and thriving. But oftentimes it doesn't happen. And we know that even when things are going quite well, their circumstances could change any moment. We know that relationships are fragile. That health is fragile. And that even when the Packers are doing really well, Aaron Rodgers' collarbone is fragile. Life is fragile. Shalom, even when we get little glimpses of it, it's hard to sustain. And so we look to Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace who came into this world to return us to an experience of vitality and shalom. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now I said earlier that one of the fundamental truths of life in this world is that the world is broken and we do not always experience the shalom and that vitality and that thriving that we really want. But there is another fundamental truth that we need to understand and that is that God's design for creation and for redemption is shalom. Shalom is God's design for creation and for redemption. When God designed this universe... He designed it to be thriving and and full of vitality and connection with him. That was his design and creation. But then Adam and Eve sinned. And and that brought devastation and brokenness, not only into the human order, but into the entire cosmos. And so what we see is brokenness. That's one of the fundamental truths. But we also have that promise that that God longs for shalom for us. He, 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 He created the world to live in shalom. It was broken And then he set forth on the process of redemption. And God's goal for redemption in our lives as well as cosmically is a return to shalom. And central to God's purpose for shalom is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Or, if you want to say it more in Hebrew, the Prince of Shalom. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, where we see Jesus, another aspect of how he is the Prince of Peace. Speaking of Jesus, and it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now based on this passage, we're going to be examining four questions this morning. Questions are these. Why is Jesus' birth so amazing? Why was Jesus born at all? Why did Jesus have to die? And what should be our response to all these truths? So let's start out with the first question. Why is Jesus' birth so amazing? The reason that Jesus' birth is so amazing is because of who Jesus is. That Jesus is God. It says in verse 15, he is the image of of the invisible God. And when it says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what that means is that when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. If we're ever wondering, okay, what is God's heart in things? How does God deal with broken people? What is God's character? 
If we're ever wondering about that, just look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, one of the chief characteristics of God is that he is the creator of all things. And we see right here in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 16, For by Jesus, by the Son of God, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him. So Jesus, God's Son, is the creator of all things. On top of that, he is the sustainer of all things. It says in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so what that means is that when scientists identify natural physical laws that govern this universe, what they are doing is simply revealing and gaining an understanding of how God designed things to be sustained. And God, in his providence, he did set up natural processes to sustain the universe. That's what scientists are identifying. Yet at the same time, because of the fact that it's in Jesus that we live and move and have our being, and because, according to verse 17 here, that he holds all things together, what that means is that if Jesus stops sustaining this universe, the natural physical laws would not be enough to keep things going. That the universe would cease to exist if he ceased sustaining it. Because he is God. And, and so this is a, a key ingredient in understanding why Jesus' birth is so amazing. Because he is God. In fact, we jump ahead to verse 19. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is God. And Jesus' birth is amazing because it is an incarnation. And that word incarnation means God taking on flesh. Incarnation, it's a Latin word. But as Christians, it's so important to understand this word incarnation. Incarnation literally means to be enfleshed. So the idea of Jesus being God incarnate is the truth that he is God with some flesh on his bones. And this is a truth that resonates throughout Scripture. For instance, John 1.14 says it very clearly. It's, it's referring to God as the Word. And it says in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Incarnation. And how amazing that is that God would step off his throne and come to this world, especially in such humble circumstances. I mean, it's, it, this is the startling and fantastic and awe-inspiring truth of Christmas that God came to this world in human form. And we sing about this truth in so many different Christmas songs. I think one of the clearest examples is in, in the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there you have the lyrics that say, say Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Even that word Emmanuel is so important to understand. It means God with us. Jesus is literally God with us in human form. So we come back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So, so why is Jesus' birth so amazing? This is God come to earth in such a humble human form. But that raises the second question to look at. Is why was Jesus born at all? I mean, we have to understand that Jesus' birth, it was not an accidental pregnancy at all. I mean, his conception and his birth, they were completely intentional as an act of God. 
literally. So why was Jesus born at all? I think that is such an important question to ask. Why would God take on flesh? And my favorite answer to this question comes from Jesus himself. I mean, you could look at this question from several different angles, biblically speaking. My favorite answer comes from John chapter 10, verse 10. And Jesus said of himself, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. That is a great explanation for why Jesus was born. Why God came to this earth was to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And this abundant life, I believe, is really just another way to describe shalom. That when we are connected with God, then we are going to experience vitality and flourishing and thriving at at least to a greater degree than we're experiencing in this world, more and more in line with God's design for us. So Jesus was born to bring us abundant life or shalom. Now there's something interesting in this passage in John chapter 10. Uh, because he said in, in verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Then the very next verse, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So in this, he says, I've come that you might have abundant life, that you might have shalom. But then you look at the means by which he accomplished that. Like a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. And to bring us abundant life or shalom, Jesus had to die. I mean, it's, it's another startling truth But that's why I think that little Christmas ornament that I showed during the children's message is so poignant. We celebrate Jesus' birth, but we have to understand that, really, if you want to put it bluntly, Jesus came to die. That was core to his mission. He did not come just to be a good teacher. He came to die, to be a savior for us on the cross. And he knew that mission throughout his life. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus, referring to himself, said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Give his life as a ransom. Similarly, over in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And he said to them, The Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. I mean, Jesus said this type of thing several times before it actually happened. He knew that central to his mission was dying. Even the prophets had indications of this. The most famous example is in Isaiah chapter 53, written again 700 years before Jesus was born. But it's telling about Jesus' mission. For instance, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, referring to Jesus, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See this indication of a suffering servant, which is why Jesus came to be that fulfillment. But I think verse 5 is so powerful here. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. You see, hear this word peace once again. Remember, Isaiah was writing in Hebrew. What is that word for peace? Shalom. The punishment that brought us shalom was on Jesus. Why was Jesus born? To 
to bring us life, to bring us shalom. How did he accomplish that? Through his death. The punishment that brought us shalom was on him. And so we see, I mean, just this powerful truth that's being played out here about how Jesus accomplished uh, just securing shalom for us. And we come back here to Colossians chapter 1. And Colossians 1 is pulling these truths back together for us that we've seen in the prophecy and in this idea of Jesus' mission. It says in verses 19 and 20, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And so this is an indicator of why Jesus was born. He was born to bring us life by dying for us. But then that raises the third question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did that have to be the route that he went? Well, remember, I said earlier, fundamental truth of life in this world is that the world is broken. Things are not as they should be. We do not experience the fullness of shalom that we may want. But there's no, the name for that fundamental truth of the brokenness of this world, it comes back to sin. Sin is everything we do that falls short of the glory of God. Now, I'm not saying that, that when, whenever we experience something wrong or bad in our lives, that, that it all is traced back to some wrong that we did or some sin we have in our life. I'm not necessarily saying that. But at the same time, sin, in some manner or another, directly or indirectly, is the root cause of all the brokenness we experience in this world. I mean, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. You just go back, read Genesis 3, and you'll see this unfortunate downfall from full shalom and communion with God and everything working out exactly as God designed to things crashing down, not just for humans, but in all creation. It's a brokenness of shalom. Sin, it wreaks havoc in our lives. I mean, to illustrate how fundamental this, this break that happens in our relationship with God and with shalom um, ha- occurs when we have sin in our lives and, and we live in this sinful, broken world, I want to give you an example. This week, I came into the church on Wednesday about an hour before the children were going to practice for their Christmas program. And as I opened the door, I thought, wow, it is really dark in here. And it's really, really quiet. Didn't seem quite right. I reached, reached for the light switch, flipped it. Nothing. Now, I heard some noise then. I realized the electricians were working in the boiler room. So I took my flashlight and my phone, went back into the boiler room, and, yep, they were working. What they were doing was making some huge transitions in our electrical service to transition it to a, a new breaker panel. And what, that, what happened then was that during that time... There was a break between all of our electrical circuits here in the church and the power that was outside from the power company on the pole. And, and as long as that, that, that electrical service was severed between us and the power company, we were not going to get any power in the church, no matter how much I flipped that switch. I mean, I could flip that switch forever. And until our electrical services hooked back up to the power company, it was not going to work. And it's that same type of thing with God, that sin is like severing that relationship with our cosmic power source, with our source of shalom and vitality. And there is nothing 
is, I mean, we may go around trying to flip various switches, metaphorically speaking, in our lives, thinking, well, maybe this will bring me happiness. Maybe this will fulfill me. But until we are reconnected with God, it's ultimately not going to work. And what we have to understand is that sin, it not only messes with our lives, it kills us spiritually. The wages of sin is death, according to Paul in Romans 6. And so Jesus came in order to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins. That is why Jesus had to die. Jesus died to destroy the barrier, namely sin, that alienates us from God. That's why he died on the cross. Because someone had to die. A death penalty had to be paid to satisfy God's justice and holiness. And Jesus was willing to pay that penalty in our place. Now a final question is what should our response be to all of these things? What should our response be? Look with me to verses 21 through 23 of Colossians 1. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this helps to helps point out part of our response, that part of our response needs to be recognize your natural alienation from God. That sin naturally alienates us from God. He says in verse 21, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Being alienated from something means there's, there's a gap between us and whatever we're alienated from. There's a gap. And so we have to understand that in our natural state, we are alienated from God. And there's nothing we can do to repair that relationship on our own. And that is why Jesus came. He came to be the reconciler. I mean, we see that term reconciliation in this passage a couple times. For instance, up in verse 20. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. He's reconciling. He's, He's destroying the animosity. And so the way to receive this gift of a renewed, reconciled relationship with God that opens the door to to vitality and shalom is to recognize our sinfulness and then to come to Jesus by faith, saying, saying, Jesus, I can't recover this relationship on my own. I need you to do it for me through your death and your resurrection. I trust you. And then we need to submit to Jesus' lordship. Remember, Isaiah chapter 9 talked about the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This idea of his government means that he is king. We see in Colossians 1, he is supreme. In order to experience shalom in our lives, as God designed it, we need to submit to him. Let me give you an analogy. You know, you can't go more than a few months without a bicycle analogy. So, bicycle wheels are quite amazing really, when you think about it. Because bicycle wheels, I mean, they only weigh a pound or two. And they have these spokes that are only, what, millimeter across at most. Yet they can support hundreds of pounds on a bicycle. They can take a pounding as you ride down the road and hit potholes and stuff like that. Um, I mean, you can, you can go, I mean, incredibly fast on them. And they can bear your weight. And, I mean, they're great. But one of the things about a bicycle wheel is that it needs to be in good condition. And you have a hub, then you have spokes. And in this analogy, imagine God is the hub because the hub is what supports the entire thing. And all these spokes need to be properly attached to the hub. 
They then need to be properly tensioned. And if you've ridden a bike for a while, maybe you've experienced what it's like to get a broken spoke. The, the wheel, the rim then becomes out of true, begins to rub on your brakes. If you get a couple broken spokes, um, I mean, it gets very dangerous very quickly. And in our lives, God is like a hub in our lives that we need to make sure that everything in our lives is lining up with him and is properly connected to him. Remember that definition of shalom. It's this, this vitality, this flourishing when things are in the right relationship with him. And unfortunately, many people go through their lives with, with various parts of their lives just kind of under their own jurisdiction, under their own sense of government. Remember, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So what we need to do is submit ourselves to Jesus' lordship, which means that we are going to align the various parts of our lives, our work life, our home life, our hobbies, our finances, our dreams for the future, our frustrations, our past. Align those things with God. Reconnect them to God. Submit to Jesus' lordship. Because, you know, the reason why so many people experience a lack of shalom, why people keep crashing and burning, why we remain awake at night, is because we are lacking shalom, and frequently it's because we are not vitally connected to him. We are trying to take leadership of our lives ourselves. We are not trusting him. And so what we need to do is make sure that we are connected to the hub, God, with all the different spokes of our life, rather than just letting broken spokes continue to fester and cause more brokenness and more pain and more lack of shalom in our lives. So what, are, what should our response to be? Turn to Jesus and submit our lives to him. Get back in alignment with him. And as we do so, we will gain more and more little glimpses of shalom in our lives. For instance, on Friday night, my daughter Tila and I, we were uh, frustrated with each other. I'll just put it that way. It was her bedtime, and we got frustrated with each other. Yesterday morning, we had a very sweet conversation where we each humbly confessed to each other those frustrations and the things that we said or did when we were too frustrated with each other, and we, we forgave each other, and, um, I mean, just expressed the love we have for each other. Uh, to me, that's a little glimpse of shalom. There was some alienation there before we were able to recover that a little glimpse of shalom in that situation. And so sometimes you get glimpses of shalom as you submit a strained relationship back to God. Sometimes the glimpses of shalom come in the midst of a hardship. You know, your favorite team loses. Stock market goes down, so your retirement loses some money. Something at work or in your family doesn't go quite how you want. Yet you remember Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so you can experience peace that transcends all understanding, even in the midst of hardship, as you trust God. And as you do so, then um, it's going to help remind you, you know what? My team, their performance, that's not the most important thing in my life. We have so many other much more important things, and we rejoice in that. It gives us a sense of, of, of completeness, even in the midst of hardship, because we know that we have something greater in the person of God. And because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, he will create the conditions for us to thrive. I mean, it starts with, with us getting reconciled with God, but then it extends to other parts of our lives. That, that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, wants to make us into grace givers and peacemakers. 
who are able to forgive others the way that he has forgiven us. And then that extends further into our inner lives, our sense of self, our sense of well-being, where we find our sense of identity and purpose in God, not in our performance, not in people's opinions of us. And that continues to expand that sense of shalom in our lives. Yes, our world is still broken. Yes, we will still face challenges. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace who came to start that process of returning us to shalom we look forward to that day when he returns to bring us fully there. Now, I said earlier that, that the cross, Jesus' death, is central to him being the Prince of Peace. And so with that in mind, we're going to celebrate this morning the Lord's Supper as a way to, to remember Jesus' death on our behalf. In just a few moments, the servers will pass out the bread and the cup. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed for us. And as you hold on to these elements, I encourage you to use that time to confess any sin to God, to, to restore that sense of fellowship with Him. Thank Him for His love, sacrificial love for you. And then hold on to the bread and the cup until everyone's been served, and that will lead us in partaking together.